1: The Outer Sanctum is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands was never ceded, and pay our respect to Elders, past and present. Good plan. Good
2: Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Outer Sanctum podcast.
3: Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton.
1: She was surrounded by blue jumpers.
3: Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. An intense on-field season has culminated with a grand final week being dwarfed by the biggest story and cultural crisis the game has ever faced. Today, we aim to have a conversation about truth-telling, the law and advocacy in this moment. My name is Emma Race and I'm thankfully joined by my feminist football sanctum sisters. I'm going to let them introduce themselves.
1: Hi,
2: it's Kate Sear. Hello, it's the girl who tips Sydney, Rana Hussein. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Hello, it's Lucy Race here. Oh, firstly, we do have some games to discuss. Yesterday's grand final was a bit of a fizzer unless you're a Geelong supporter, but Norm Smith could have equally been split between Isaac Smith for on-field, Joel Selwood for his community-led heart and Robbie Williams for excellence in future. Did we get the grand final that the
2: season deserved, Rana? Oh, look, probably not. Fizzler was the word that came to my mind as well. Maybe we got the grand final that this red hot final series kind of had to have. We had the best, most amazing finals ever. And so, of course, to balance that out, we needed a complete Fizzer. So it kind of worked in that way for me. But as you know, you know because of the chat group, I will always barrack for a close game and so... Yeah, I was disappointed.
3: Katie, it was a pretty beautiful day that Melbourne put on. First time it was back at the G for two years. It was a record crowd but not watching it on TV. There were some hiccups with Channel 7 putting it on the app or not putting it on the app. People couldn't find it. feels like um, in the wake of a broadcast deal of that magnitude, felt pretty surreal that it wasn't available on the app. Um, mm. But the people in the ground seemed to have a nice time. What was the experience like watching it from home?
1: Well, it was fun until the game started as Rana said which I I'm with Rana I also tipped Sydney um, but I also was barracking for a close game which I always am when um, as a neutral supporter when when my team's not playing so it was disappointing you know there was a very big build-up it was a perfect day for football. The weather was absolutely gorgeous. And um, many people, of course, were gathered with friends and family to watch it. And then um, it felt like it was all pretty much over by the first quarter, which is great if you're a Cats fan, but uh, not for the rest of us. But just on the question of television ratings, M, I just want to say I've already seen people starting to talk about the fact that the ratings were down on previous years because it was a day grand final. And I'm like, no, don't go there. I will not have another discussion about whether the game should be played in the evening or at twilight. There are so many other factors, including that, you know, in the last couple of years, viewer numbers have probably been up because everyone's been at home, particularly those of us here in Victoria who have been in lockdown. So I just want to put paid to that. I know Gil McLaughlin will be (laughs) listening to the pod, he always does. And uh, we must stick with the day grand final because it was was a spectacle. Lucy, what were your
3: highlights from the game apart from the fact that we basically just went from food stand to food stand (laughs) yesterday? We were freezing cold.
0: Well, I mean, you mentioned the huge crowd. The MCG was at 100% capacity, which I think is awesome. 10 out of 10. Well done, everybody. And it is the highest number of people at the game since 1986, which according to Swamp, there was no player playing in the game that was born the last time there was a crowd that size. And I really liked that stat. So thank you for that, Sir Swamp thing. My highlight, um, I've got a confession to make. My name is Lucy Race and I'm a fan of Joel Selwood. After many years and much heartbreak at the hands of the Geelong Football Club and also by that man, Joel Selwood, I came away from yesterday's game just the hugest fan. Just I loved him and he was wonderful on field as he always is. But as the 34 year old playing for his fourth premiership which he you know is now a premiership winning captain it was those non-footy moments and those other gestures that just were so emotional it started when he carried Gary Ablett's son Levi through the banner and there wasn't a dry eye in the MCG and I'm sure there wasn't at home it was such a beautiful moment and then when he kicked that goal At the end, in the fourth quarter, and you could see the emotion on his face, he then presented his boots to young Archie, the Oz kicker, and then got all the Oz kickers together for a photo. And then if that wasn't enough, he, as he was doing his lap of honor, you will have seen these pictures where he came across Sam Moorfoot, who's been the water person at the club for the past seven years. Sam and Joel have a lovely relationship. Joel got Sam over the fence, Jeremy Cameron gave Sam his medal to put on and they had photos taken on field and it was so beautiful. There was a quote from Sam where he said, I think Joel is amazing, he treats me like a brother and looks out for me and that's via Andrew McMurdy for Fox Sport. Those moments just said that, you know, it's more its more than a game, it really is, that at its best this game has an ability to bring people together And that's what I saw. So thank you, Joel Selwood, for those moments. I needed them this week.
1: It's interesting. I know a couple who have a concept that I think they developed in their relationship that they refer to as an admittee. And an admittee is when uh, you've done something wrong, you've made a mistake, you've had a, you know, you need to admit that you you made an error of some kind. And what they do in their relationship is they allow each other to make an admittee. And once you've made an admittee, the other person is not allowed to mock you for it. So um, <laughs> yesterday <laughs> yesterday watching the grand final, Lucy, I also felt like I had to put my hand up and say, admitty, I might have got Joel Selwood wrong all these years. Um, and now that I've made the admitty, you're not allowed to mock me for it, even though my partner has spent all day mocking me for it. And every time we see Joel Selwood on the telly, he says, there's your mate. As your mate, um, but yeah, he was he was a highlight. He was delightful, and um, the scenes of his family members—I think his mother and his um, partner—in tears in the stands sig- seemed to signal that he was going to retire as well. I, th- I think it looks like that's the direction in which it's headed. So, what a what a way to go out for Joel Selwood if that was his last game. What were your highlights from the Granny Kate? Well, I was very delighted to see Isaac Smith win the Norm Smith. I sent you all a message. Uh, I think, in the first quarter and said Isaac Norm Smith, And I was very happy that I got it right. I was very happy for him because, um, you know, he's he's a great player and he's such a delight to watch. Um, I want to give three votes to Robbie Williams, who I think had the toughest job of the day. It's probably the toughest job in footy every year to try and...
3: Luckily, he got paid more than every other person who <laughs> plays and administers the game for his, for his services to AFL.
1: That's true. It was a tough gig, but perhaps offset by like a couple of million dollars or whatever he got. But, you know, every time I watch the pre match entertainment, I think what a difficult task it must be because you've got a hundred thousand people who are seated, who are a fair distance away from you. So there's not like a, a crowd um, or, or you mosh know, a mosh pit, <laughs> pit right at your feet that you can kind of engage with. They're, at, they're off at a distance. Those of you who've been to grand finals will know that people are seated, people are talking, people are eating their lunch, you know, and you must know that of course, as the performer, that there are a lot of people who are engaged or disengaged um, but I thought he did a great job at bringing the crowd in from the outset I loved when he uh, also sung his new song and said this is the obligatory new song we're just gonna have to <laughs> we're just gonna have to get through it together but on the budget question M he did get paid, he obviously got paid a, a fair amount for it but I think the AFL must have tried to then save costs in the wardrobe department because he and Abby Holmes wore the same outfit she came out in a bright pink suit as well and I wondered whether he'd borrowed it for Abby for the occasion. Um, it looked great on both of them, though, and it was um, it was a delight actually.
3: Rana, you love those. Um, you love the entertainment. We all love the ent- entertainment. Oh. I know that you would have been just bang onto this as well. But was it your highlight, or was there something else?
2: Oh, look, it was definitely a highlight. And I was wondering actually if Delta's beautiful pink jumpsuit was also an homage or honor to Olivia Newton-John I wasn't sure I definitely got ONJ vibes from that I definitely loved all of it but my absolute highlight was Tyson Stengel um, which is a little bit personal because I got to work with him at Richmond and get to know him a little bit he's very quiet at Richmond um, and I think he is in general but to kind of know his story, to know that he's had some tough times, to then come back and absolutely prove himself, not just on grand final day but all season. Um, he's been the recruit of the year for me and I was just so proud to see him succeed. And then the tears between him and Eddie Betts, I mean, it just slayed me and it's sort of one of the stories that, you know, I know we're going to go on to talk about the happenings of this week. It kind of it puts it all into perspective again and and it it made me feel all of the feelings but just to see him kick four goals and a point was everything for me.
3: Yeah it was a spectacular part of the story and also that Eddie Betts is a part of that Geelong outfit. Their culture um, it is a conversation. I'm going to feel nervous forever talking about footy club culture and making any sweeping statements because the rug's well and truly been pulled out from under us this week. But I will say this my highlight was Nina Morrison and Meg McDonald on the ground after the grand final win, being included in the AFL M success of the Cats. And I have had messages with Meg. She confirmed that they were both on the ground, they were both a part of all of the celebrations last night. And I think that that. Speaks volumes. I love it. I love to see it. I love to see those two players getting respect from the club that they play for and uh, Nina Morrison on socials. <laughs> there's just never there's never, uh, there's never, a negative with that because she goes hard and I just love her for it. Uh, there was, of course, a festival of AFLW footy over the last few days sitting around kind of supporting the festival of the AFLM Grand Final. I do think that this timing is working out really well For football. Some surprising results and some excellent moments. There are still games being played as we record this. I'm going to come to you for your highlights, Lucy. Do you want to go first with your AFLW highlights?
0: Yes. Oh gosh, highlights. There's always so many when it comes to the W and I don't want to be parochial, but it is very hard to go past the Hawthorne AFLW team getting their first win. It was history made for those women and it wasn't an easy game. It was a really tough, contested game. Um, it was an absolute privilege to be there to watch them, to see them run out in their Indigenous jumpers, which was a decision that the team made that they really wanted to do. A Akech spoke about that decision and said they wanted to listen to and respect First Nations people, and wearing that jumper was part of that gesture. Um, In terms of on-field, my three votes goes to Talia Fellows, big boy, for her three goals. Um, They were all exceptional um, and she had an exceptional goal assist as well, which I think someone else might mention. But my other highlight is I just would like to – Shout out Sabrina Duffy who was a star forward at the Fremantle Football Club. Um she took a break for wellbeing and also for her career after season 5. She's now moved to Melbourne and played her first game against Carlton. She kicked a great goal in the second quarter and you could just see how happy she was. Um how wonderful it is to have her back. You'll also notice that she looked a little bit different because she shaved her head. That's to raise money. She has a GoFundMe at the moment where she's raising money for kids in the foster care. System. And she's doing that because that's something that she has a lived experience of. So we'll share that GoFundMe link in the notes. But I'm just so happy to see her back. And congratulations to Taylor in that game who kicked 300th goal. That is so impressive. There was a pretty amazing
3: result for the Tigers this weekend in the AFLW runner. Is that your highlight? It was a massive upset.
2: It absolutely was my highlight. It was a little bit blink and you'd miss it if you were just tuned into the AFLM because uh, the game was just before the grand final. And I fully, I mean, I love the Tigers, but I did not expect them to beat Brisbane at all. I mean, who did? So what a thrill to see that happen. I mean, it was Courtney Wakefield field's game uh, and I love it when she turns up like that uh two goals one point but for me the moment of the game was Beth Lynch's smother, which Brisbane would have won the game otherwise and you just you talk about game-changing moments that was it for me my like, god I sound like some kind of spawn con <laughs> hashtag game-changing moments <laughs> um, <laughs> but that was that was it for me and I just thought at punt road and then to like the cherry on top was Peggy O'Neill entering the rooms afterwards to sing the song and I love the women when they sing. They sing in time. They don't speed the song up. They keep the beat and it was just perfect for me.
3: Yeah, that was a pretty massive highlight. Geelong also had, by the way, their highest ever score and uh, the Dockers and the West Coast game was a real battle. They were really arm wrestling all day. Katie, what was your highlight?
1: Yeah, that that game, I mean, that was was what kicked off this round actually that was on Thursday night which seems like a lifetime ago now I'm going to call it an event because I don't want to pronounce it incorrectly but it was a local event in which Fremantle played <laughs> West the D. so yeah I don't know I don't know what to call it but that was an exciting game the Dockers prevailed by three points in what's actually their first win in season seven uh, after they had a draw last week their captain Haley Miller was probably the best on ground, absolutely outstanding with 26 disposals. She also won the medal, the the medal that starts with that word that starts with D. But I'm going to start calling it the Royal Shrovetide Medal. And if you wonder what that means, you're going to have to Google it. And sit back and enjoy the ride. Uh, but that was a great game. And, and look, as a, as a hawker, I have to say, of course, yes, that seeing the women, the Hawthorne women, uh, win their first ever game was fantastic. Especially thrilling was Gilroy's goal, which is the goal that put Hawthorne in front. It's the one that you gestured towards earlier, Lucy, with the pickup. Um, from Fallows, which was sensational. She passed it off to uh, Akech Makor Chut and then she passed it on to Gilroy for that goal and her celebration was just so exciting. Um, I've been saying, you know, for a few weeks now on the podcast that there's a lot to like among uh, all the expansion teams and I think, you know, there's something in it for everyone if you've got a new club. You know, they're they're chipping away, they're they're getting better over time and you can see with each of those expansion teams um, just more fluency, more um, connection connectedness as each round goes on so you know that was great for Hawthorne and no doubt um, Sydney will will prevail soon enough too. In the uh, Suns Port
3: Adelaide match, Port Adelaide were really slow to get going. The Suns beat them though and I was really surprised by that. The quality of the games is of course getting better game round on round. Uh, Melbourne looking pretty dominant again this week. I think they'll have a spring in their step after seeing what happened to Brisbane. My heart goes out to Carlton you know, my my club-in-law, they have been absolutely like just depleted through injury, just so frustrating f- for so many of those players, runner.
2: But also just like how scary are Collingwood playing? Yes. yes. Like what is going on there? <laughs> What are they
3: doing at the play? Yeah, my highlight um, was, of course, Hawthorne, but quite specifically, I want to get really specific, was um, a catcher's game-saving tackle and just uh, jumping on the ball <laughs> in the last 35 seconds. And a massive shout-out to Bet Goddard for whom I think this win was restoration in self-belief and, and a leadership moment that just proves that the value of having AFLW teams in afl clubs far outweighs any cost and i was so proud of her for exercising all of her emotions she really went there in her address at quarter time and to see them then pick her up and carry her onto the field it meant a lot but i think the journey that she's been on has been a really challenging one and uh, i was just pleased to see her have that moment okay are we ready to roll up our sleeves and melee? I'm not sure that we can ever be quite ready for this. But as we embark on this conversation, I am mindful that people will be tuning in to see how we respond and to see how, particularly three of us who are Hawthorne supporters, but also white women, how we feel in the wake of the revelations in Russell Jackson's article, how we feel is, of course, of absolutely zero consequence. There is a discomfort in this conversation, and not because it's so difficult, but I think it's because. We all believe that this is a time to listen right now, but this is, of course, a podcast, so talking is essential. For many people listening to this podcast, what we've read this week may have been shocking to you, but I'd be surprised if you were shocked. You are the people who do the listening in this space and you feel things deeply. For some of you, this may be too painful to stick around and listen to, so we give you leave to prioritise self-care at this moment. Let's first start, Kate, with clearing up the anatomy of this story because there's been a lot of conflicting information out there and you've been able to sort through it with your legal mind. And I think that that's helpful for us to first get context into how this information came into the the public domain.
1: Yeah, there are, I think, several points of confusion, but I think there's one particularly major point of confusion that I wanted to clear up in sort of explaining how the story rolled out. So the story became public this week when ABC journalist Russell Jackson published the story uh, on Wednesday. Deep down, right at the bottom of the story, you may recall that he said that comments had been sought from people who had been the subject of those allegations, that is Alistair Clarkson, Chris Fagan and Jason Burt, and that he hadn't received a response. What then happened was that sort of Several hours later, Alistair Clarkson released a statement. I'll just read part of it here. He said that he was, quote, shocked by the extremely serious allegations, unquote, and then he went on to say, quote, I was not interviewed by the authors of the report commissioned by the club, and nor have I been provided with a copy of the report. I was not provided any due process, and I refute any allegation of wrongdoing or misconduct, And look forward to the opportunity to be heard. Uh, Chris Fagan released a, a similar statement saying that he was shocked by the allegations denied wrongdoing and uh, that he hadn't been afforded due process. And I think what happened then is that people conflated the media report with the report that was itself commissioned by the club. So what Clarkson and Fagan are saying, uh, they're not saying that the journalist who published the story didn't give them the heads up, didn't give them an opportunity to comment. He clearly did. And Russell Jackson has tweeted about that and and given um, some background to the timeline. Clarkson and Fagan are talking about the report that was commissioned by the club itself. They're saying that they didn't have any due process. They weren't interviewed by the people who wrote the report. They didn't get an opportunity to respond and um, that that's what they're looking forward to. So the report was commissioned by Hawthorne and then when Hawthorne had a sense of the gravity of the allegations, evidently passed the report on to the AFL Integrity Unit. Um, and sometime in between that or around that, um, the story itself made its way to Russell Jackson who then published it. So that's how things unfolded um, and there's absolutely no criticism that can be made of Russell Jackson. He's, he certainly afforded those people an opportunity to speak. May I ask you a question,
3: Kate? In terms of the report, it was commissioned by Hawthorne in a response to what happened at Collingwood and the Do Better report. It was a report wanting to find information about the culture. It, uh, its intention was only ever to speak to First Nations players and employees of the club from a certain time period. I don't understand why either of the people who things have been alleged against would have ever been spoken to. It seems outside of the scope of that report for them to come and say we were not given due process because we were not spoken to about this when that was not the intention of that report. Can you explain why that's why that actually feeds into this?
1: I haven't seen the terms of reference Um, of the report that that Hawthorne commissioned, but that's my understanding too, Em, is that they were looking to review the the culture of the club and to get a better understanding of how current Indigenous players felt at the club and whether they felt culturally safe and also to speak to past Indigenous players about their experiences. I think not only in the wake of the Collingwood Do Better report, but also in the wake of um, allegations that Cyril Rioli and his wife had made earlier this year. The issue that Clarkson and Fagan are pointing to is one of what we call procedural fairness, or it's also referred to as natural justice. What they're really getting at there is that any time that you are, whether it's in the course of a workplace matter or some some dealing with government or even a criminal allegation when when an allegation is made about you there's a fundamental requirement of the people who receive the 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 accusation to afford you procedural fairness and that really has two components one you have an entitlement to know what the allegations concerning you are and to get the details of those allegations and then two an opportunity to respond to those allegations. So what Clarkson and Fagan, um, and Jason Burt may have said this too, but I haven't myself seen a a press release or a statement from him. I might just have missed it. But what Clarkson and Fagan are pointing to essentially is that along the way in in the course of this review, the things that came out from uh, past players and their families were in the nature of allegations or accusations kind of something akin to workplace grievances, and what they are saying is we think we should have been uh, afforded procedural fairness, so an opportunity to be told at some stage along the way what had been alleged and then have an opportunity to respond. I think the difficulty is that the terms of reference that Hawthorne um, established from the outset may not have um, anticipated these kinds of allegations being made, and and I I can't say whether the club had thought about procedural fairness issues. Um, I can make no comment on that, but I think that's what they're pointing to. Um, but of course. The, the uh, report then made its way, as I said earlier, to the AFL Integrity Unit and then became public before there had been any procedural fairness um, process underway. And of course, now the AFL is um, looking to establish a panel that will investigate all of the allegations in their entirety and give everybody concerned an opportunity to have a say.
3: As Kate just alluded to, Rana, the report was potentially undertaken because of reports that had come out about Cyril's time at the Hawthorne Football Club. Do you think that this is a moment that will ricochet across all of the club's because of things that happened with Adam Goods, because the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players and, and a lot of other players actually who come from migrant backgrounds or from um, cultural and linguistically diverse backgrounds as well, that they are now saying it is time for us to stand up together as a cohort. Do you think that we'll see more people stepping into this moment, which means that Heretier and Joel Wilkinson are not the only lone voices out there anymore?
2: Yeah, I do and I hope so. It surprises me that we haven't <laughs> earlier than this. When Do Better sort of happened at Collingwood, I remember I remember even saying it on national television, this is actually a time for every club to look under their hood, to open their doors and say come to us with what your stories are, what your experiences were. I remember advising, and and this is not about what I said, more just that so many voices said at the time, spoke to clubs and advised, this is the time, do it now, because this isn't a Collingwood thing. Even though we were so eager to frame it that way, particularly in the media, uh, and time and time again, particularly Indigenous voices said this is baked into the entire industry and so where is the leadership on this? And I guess that's where my frustration lies. I mean it lies in a lot of places but that these calls have been made for a long time over a sustained period of time and I guess, you know, maybe it needed to accumulate but I hope now that it does finally happen. And I've seen it in, in the wake of the Do Better report, good work happening it's never going to be perfect work. It's never going to be all the work that we want it to be. And I often fall into that trap myself as somebody who's trying to do the work, who calls for it, to look for all of the work all the time. But actually, when I stop and look back, I think we've come so far. We really have in a short space of time. And this, I think, has just kicked it up a gear. I really, I mean, I'm so heartened heartened to see that clubs are now doing their own reviews or saying that they will. Again, what that looks like, what that unearths, I brace for, but it is progress of some kind. The other thing I think about is the fact that clubs and sport in general have had a number of opportunities. And so I think about Yorook, the truth telling process here in Victoria. That is, I mean, continues to be an opportunity for sport and industries all over Victoria to make submissions. It's a truth-telling process that is led by Indigenous Australians. And they have been saying to sport, make submissions. This is your time. You should really be asking Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people if they have had experiences with your organisation or your institution to come forward. And sport hasn't. I'm constantly amazed by that. I remember talking to cricket about this. I remember talking to clubs about this. And I don't know what the fear is. I mean, I understand there's a fear of, well, what will we find? I I don't know. I think that that process is still open and I would just urge people to consider it. I'm Natasha Stott-Despoir and you're listening to the Outer Sanctum Podcast.
3: There's opportunities for growth and leadership all the time, like as you say, Rana, that they didn't put in submissions. It reminds me of the Royal Commission into the handling of sexual abuse of children that happened and also the AFL was not a part of that. Russell Jackson, of course, has been a key advocate for people who have faced um, that horror because of their relationship with football as well. It's an interesting time to look at you, Rana, because I think you're an exceptional leader and you have written articles and you've been very vocal about saying, we need to find new and different ways to break down the way that institutions deal with all of these issues. And we need to come up with new and creative ideas and we need to hear new and different voices. I know you feel like you're a lone voice in that. And you've reposted today an article that is really timely because you wrote it a while ago but it was about the search for the new CEO and and you said things that i think when that came out might have seemed so outrageous but now i feel like that's going to actually be the temperature of the next part of this conversation is we can't just keep having these lone voices calling for us to do things differently because we keep doing things the same we keep getting the same result i know that it's a lot of work but there must be a part of you that thinks okay game on let's go
2: I like to think that I, I'm i that calm and collected <laughs> to think kind of this is the opportunity and it is, it absolutely is the opportunity but I won't lie in, in that I feel, I felt frustration and anger first and a bit of, a little bit of, when I've been in conversations where I'm having that or I hear somebody else have that those conversations and when it's met with a blank stare or, well, no, why would we do that? Or, oh, no, no, but there's no issue right now. So that's bottom of the pile. Like That can feel very frustrating and, and a little bit like it isn't, but a little bit like you're being gaslighted. I don't love using that word. But the moments for leadership come in these kind of times when you're not expecting it or when nobody else is saying it but it's the right thing to do and it is the risk and it is taking that moment up. And so, again, you know, I just think, you know, the commissioner going to appoint a new CEO now is the time to really think hard. Do we want the status quo or do we want someone who can manage this, who can understand it, who will bring a whole new skill set? And even when I resurface that article, I then cop another wave of, well, <laughs> this is your woke agenda. What are you talking about? No, the business of sport is the most important thing. I just, <laughs> I just keep saying and thinking, no, like, do we want it to change? We all agree we want it to change, then we've got to do something different.
3: Lucy, you've been listening to a lot of voices, reading articles, and as you always do, nose down in podcasts and articles and listening to people who do lead us at this moment as well. What are some of the takeaways?
0: Well, just on what you were saying just then, I'd like to just bring into the conversation what I heard Charlie King say on offsiders. And he said something that I think we should take very seriously, which is that if this isn't dealt with then sport is going to be too dangerous a place for First Nations people. He said a number of other things, and I think we're at a moment, this is a seismic moment for the code. It's a seismic moment for the club that I support, but also for the code, for the league. And... We have an opportunity, as you say, Rana and em, to to really make the changes that we've needed for so long because if we go back and there was a wonderful article earlier in the week by Matthew Stokes who basically listed a whole lot of moments on the timeline that just show us that we haven't dealt with these issues properly. I really wanted to ask the question of you guys today, whether we've got the systems in place to, to do this or whether we we really need to, to throw everything out and start again. One of the things that Charlie mentioned on offsiders is just a, a whole other idea of what he'd like to see is a formal First Nations body at the AFL with a seat on the commission. Now, I know there's already one Aboriginal person on the AFL commission, but He's talking about, you know, really thinking outside the square and having a body of elders who basically sit at that level. And I, that's actually something I've been thinking about as well um, as I've been trying to grapple with these issues this week. And what I really love about that solution is that I think if we, you know, try and put one person, one First Nations per- person on every board, I don't think that we give them the greatest chance for success. The other thing that a, a body like that would potentially do is open up the lines of communication for people at all levels of of the game to have somebody to go to or a group of people to go to. There are going to be some situations where it's actually going to take a really long time for people to to share their stories and when I think about this story particularly, the families at the centre of this story are dealing with things that are incredibly personal and we can't put our timelines on people who are in those situations to have mm. to share stuff in a way that we think is is helpful for any other kind of metric yeah. or process. But I just think it's going to take, as, as Charlie King said, it's going to take really different systems. It's going to have to be deep change and... Deep work. For fans and for media, the challenge is that this can't happen quickly. I would urge people who are fans of the game, fans of the club, to understand that you will be having very complex emotions and that knee jerk responses lashing out at other people isn't going to be helpful here that listening is is the greatest greatest thing that we can possibly do kate i want to come to you just thinking about ways that we can start shaking
3: it up let's start thinking really broadly about what we actually need to do because this, this is this is a reckoning it's going to be really hard it's going to take a long time and it's going to have a lot of difficult aspects to it especially when it is occurring in a colonized society where everything outside of sport is replicate replicates what is happening in sport as well obviously it needs to happen at the level of government and that's a conversation that i know that is happening at the moment in canberra as well but you know if we want to think really creatively maybe there is a whole other arm that needs to be set up that has its own money that we don't just chess beat about broadcast deals and then don't put our money where our mouth is.
1: Kate? I mean, Lucy, you mentioned earlier... Um, Some of the comments from Charlie King on Offsiders on ABC um, and and that's an episode well worth going back and watching. There are a few other interesting things that were said in that discussion though too and one of them was that the lawyer who's representing the AFL, Peter Gordon, who of course used to be the president of the Western Bulldogs, is in talks with Leon Zwire who is representing these uh, Indigenous families and they're trying to together negotiate and nut out a process going forward. And, you know, one question that's been asked is whether it should be a process that sits way outside the AFL that looks like something more like a judicial inquiry that goes beyond the allegations that these families have made, but looks at issues of race and racism in the sport more broadly, so much will depend on what happens next. I mean, I know that that states the obvious, but you know, the terms of reference uh, for any inquiry or investigation play a huge role in shaping precisely what it is that you're able to find out, who you're able to interview, what you're able to know. And there are a lot of complexities and sensitivities here, including, as I mentioned earlier, that Clarkson and Fagan have denied wrongdoing or misconduct and um, are looking for a process that they and their lawyers will feel is fair. Um, And so there are so many balls in the air here that the AFL has to juggle uh, and and think through, and I really sincerely hope that whatever happens, that there will be a process that suits everybody, that is respectful of everybody's concerns and needs. And I have no doubt that if processes are proposed that aren't respectful of all of the rights and interests of everybody concerned here, that there won't be an agreement reached. And that is also, I think, a really genuine possibility that one or other parties might just say, "I'm not prepared to be involved," and then we might be stuck with. You know, knowing what on earth do we do next? That these can, um, allegations have been made, and sitting there, but there's there's been no process to investigate them further. So, you know, whatever is decided, it has to be done with great care and sensitivity, and carefully. I also just want to say something about the knee jerk reaction that you mentioned earlier, Lucy, because this is also a great frustration of mine. That as soon as this story was published, we saw a return to like football tribalism that I think we see any time a major story or major allegations are revealed. In this case, it's allegations of racism. We had the same thing happen when the Collingwood Do Better report was was leaked to the press. We saw the same thing happen during the Essendon drug scandal. I think we see it almost every time that a player is accused of family violence or sexual assault um, or racism. People are passionate about the teams that they support and they're passionate about their clubs. They're passionate about individual players. And I think, um, so often people in the outer do revert to tribalism and refuse to accept that my club could have done anything wrong or that this player that i love could have done anything wrong that does everybody a disservice and i find it so frustrating because you know sooner or later your club or your player the person you love is going to come in the fire into the firing line and you know what are you what are you going to say then so i just really urge everybody to take a deep breath try to remain calm and let the investigation that's now going going to proceed or the inquiry, whatever form it takes, unfold. That defensiveness, that taking it personally really hampers the debate and the discussion, especially when issues of this sort of level of significance like racism or sexism unfold within the context of sport, we need to move beyond tribalism and just listen and and let the process unfold.
3: Rana, earlier this year, we had an interview with Craig Foster on the podcast and he was talking about a human rights framework for working through sport and for sport to actually be implemented and administered with a human rights framework. That's something that Charlie King did reference again today. The work that you do sees you having these conversations with CEOs and you've also been at Cricket Australia and you've been in a club. Does this get talked about at Clubland, or at the level of administration, or from CEOs, or is this just something that we all say and that we all want? And when I say we all, you know, the sanctum type people, and it actually doesn't ever get considered.
2: Oh gosh, I mean that's hard to know. It will be now, is what I know, and it is now. And and I did hear Paul Marsh speaking on the ticket with Tracy Holmes about you know, work that they've started around our human rights framework. I've had some conversations with him myself. So it is starting to get there and on the map. But even when Collingwood's Do Better Report came out and that was, that was a conversation that was raised, it sort of was still felt like it was bottom of the pile stuff because, again, we do think about even things like gender equality, we think of them as, side to the main arena and until that changes until we fully understand uh, that these are all very interconnected interconnected things and connected to the business as well um, it just won't change and I think that's sort of where I was going. Again, just back to that leadership conversation, I think a lot of people, you know, when I first wrote that article when I resurfaced it today, they hear I'm asking for a person of colour or I'm asking for someone who doesn't know footy at all or who can't do the job and it really is annoying because I think, no, we just want someone whose leadership capacity is much greater and can navigate much bigger conversations and that's the point of it.
3: I understand that because I think sometimes people say, it's foot it's just footy it just needs to be administered by someone who understands footy but unfortunately the damage that just footy can do is so great that it needs to have someone who has a really careful hand and a real a real grasp and understanding of all of those issues and I think that leadership changes all the time and I think that the moment that we're in now requires a leader who's possibly very different to the leaders that we've had in The past, and I think that the world has changed in that moment. And you don't need to look any further than the fact that after 9 11, Rudy Giuliani was a good leader in some capacity. And I think back on that now, it doesn't have paid to it now because of the way that the world has changed. So it's a terrible example and a great example all in one go. Mm. Um, but I do think that the world has changed the requirements are different and it is just footy, but the damage that it can do is way more than that. You
0: know, we've had so many conversations about equality versus equity. I don't know that a lot of organisations have got to a place of, of grappling with that and I think it's a very difficult thing to grapple with and I just am not entirely convinced we have the skills to do that at this point.
3: And it goes both ways because I think also Yeah, thinking about equity and equality is that when you think about a culture in a club, it's not one culture. It's made up of so many different parts and what the culture may be lands differently on people depending on their lived experience. I mean
2: I feel like I'm just
3: doing Sanctum 101 here but never has it felt truer.
2: A question I keep hearing or, you know, a thread of a conversation that I keep hearing is around because this story has played out so publicly now, that regardless of outcome or what happens, people are damaged on both sides. And how do you ever have a fair process then? Because it has become so public. How do we even begin to think about that? And, and when you hear those questions, what goes through your mind?
1: Yeah, so it's a really good question, Rana, and I'm not sure of you know I'm not sure of the answer. To that, um, and as I said earlier, I think so much depends on on what happens next. And I appreciate that there may be people involved in this story who uh, don't feel that they can be involved in a process going forward, or are concerned about the nature of the process going forward. Whether it's because they're you know they're not sure that it will be fair, whether they they feel it might be too traumatic for them, um, and so on. For me, a really important question, or there's a series of important interrelated questions that I would like us to answer and and I think if the AFL does go down the path of opening this up into a bigger inquiry these are the sorts of things I would like to see explored for me there are important questions about you know whether people whether it's indigenous people or non-indigenous people in football clubs if they have grievances how they feel about existing processes whether they feel that those mechanisms are safe culturally safe legally safe procedurally safe for them you know whether they have considered making a complaint and if they did uh, make a, you know, if they didn't make a complaint, why not? What was it about those processes that might have dissuaded them? You know, that, that to me is actually equally important here. There's been a lot of talk in the last few days, discussion on social media, discussion in the outer about why these families didn't come forward sooner and make these complaints if indeed they were real, you know, that kind of Question that's that's often asked why they went to the media and so on you know for me that that's often asked in a very cynical way those questions are often asked I think in order to sort of discredit the people who've made the allegations but there is a kernel of something in there that I do want the AFL to pick apart and that is the, did those families consider making raising their concerns earlier did they try to uh, if they didn't why not Because that's where we get into the real nub of systemic change that may need to be Um, explored fully time and time again, you know, in a very different context, but a context which I feel much more familiar with commenting on, women who make complaints about family violence or sexual assault routinely complain that those mechanisms are flawed and that the kind of legal tests and legal processes available to them are really limited and limiting and often traumatising. And we are seeing work underway in Australia to do things like change the way those complaint mechanisms work, to change the law associated with rape, for example example, so that we have a def- different definition, a different test that kind of tries to move beyond some of the limitations that have existed up until now and that routinely result in women's complaints not being taken seriously or not being able to be heard. Um, so those, that, you know, that's a very different context, I know, but it's one where we're really getting into the kind of trying to pick apart and pull apart the mechanisms that exist
0: I think this is a conversation that we're going to have to keep revisiting because this is a very, very big moment for our sport and it's going to be a conversation that keeps, it's going to be around for a long time. But thinking about who we do this pod for, I know that we've had a number of questions about from fans about how do you how do you reconcile this? How do you, What actions can you take or how do you actually go forward? And I was wondering if anyone had something that they wanted to share there because my, my decision has been to basically to walk towards our women's team because they're an important part and a very new part of our club. But do you guys have other things that you'd like to share? With some levity, I want to say that I'm
3: keeping an eye out on the mascots.
0: I'm no, not even joking I know, that's
3: about that. I'm not even joking. This is the dumbest <laughs> thing, right? I actually was thinking about our gorgeous friends who are inside the mascot suit. There was fans, there's fans who are scared to wear their scarf. Imagine putting on the whole suit right now.
2: For people listening, for people who are keeping abreast of this situation, but finding it really difficult, it is so important to invest in that self-care and, and not everybody can tap out uh, because it is their lived experience, but to find solidarity or community, or if you can even tap out, then tap out and 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 look after yourself because that is part of being able to listen to, that we can't you know be depleted and we need to to carry on with strength and I also just wanted to say that <laughs> I've been thinking so much about the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff and allies who take up roles in this industry to make it better for everybody else. I can't imagine how it must feel for them when that is what they do. It's their life's work. I'm hoping they're also uh, engaging in some significant self-care.
3: You know, a story like this severely limits the amount of people who would want to give their time and energy to this code and to this business. Imagine being the people who have to do the work. Who, who are First Nations people. It's got to be an easier way to make a living and to make a difference without speaking about lateral violence again. Like I know that people who put themselves in the arena at this time, especially First Nations people, are the ones who are going to face it the hardest. And, man, this is a heavy pod. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Kate's here. Do you have any final thoughts?
1: I'm um, Just to, as I said earlier, I, I go for Geelong now, so <laughs> <laughs> I go for Joel Selwood. <laughs> Was that your no,
2: specifically, you go for Joel and, Selwood. And because I made it the Joel admitting, you allowed to mock me for it. <laughs> can I say, I'm really thrilled that I can finally outwardly love Joel Selwood <laughs> in this group. <laughs> and Robbie Williams. <laughs> I feel like I could. Um,
3: there's no one else I'd rather walk through the hellfires of this conversation with than you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you also to our, our pod siblings, who have absolutely informed everything we've said today. They may not all be on this actual pod for various reasons, but we never come to these conclusions by ourselves and it's all through the conversation and the relationship. Thank you so much to our listeners who stick around and do this work too and slide into our DMs (laughs) where you're very welcome. And we will see you in the Outer. At AFLW games, usually the grand final pod is us whooping it up. All of us in a car eating packets of mint slices or having a party. But we've got work to do because the AFLW continues and the competition keeps heating up. And we want to be there for those people who play. So I think there's only one thing left to say. If you've got it in it, have you got it in you to say it?
1: Go, good hats,
2: buddy. Go, Jeremy Cameron's. Go, baby cats. cows.